Do you ever find yourself questioning your relationship with others? Wondering what happened to those you considered your friends in years past? Every one of us has grown further apart than we would readily admit with those around us. And sometimes those that we consider close are actually at a distance and we haven't even realized it. At times we are the ones that have grown apart and we don't even see it clearly for ourselves. You see, last week we looked at God's view from the outside and the limits of mercy. We discussed the reality that many times the better look is from the outside. In the case of Israel, as Jeremiah continues his lament, we find that these assumptions are made by those who don't see it from God's point of view. We looked at last week the limits of mercy in verses 1 through 3. And this week we're going to be continuing that and looking at the assumption of friendship in verses 4 through 5. And number three, the loss of connection, verses 6 through 10. Let's go with number two, the assumption of friendship in verses 4 through 5. Uh, this is God's point of view. Standing like an enemy, he has bent his bow. With his right hand like an adversary, he has slain all who were pleasing to his eye. On the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord was like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all their palaces. He has destroyed her strongholds and has increased mourning and lamentation in the daughter of Judah. I thought we were friends is essentially the assumption made by Israel when God strikes them with judgment. They assume that God would not come after them in judgment. God aims His bow of justice at the nation of Israel as an enemy attacking. Instead of showing pity, He responds, as this text says, in fury like fire. He goes after those He seems right to go after. And it's a truth that many miss constantly. Many of us miss the fact that God is not looking ultimately to please us. God is looking that we please Him. God is the greatest and the one that is worthy of our admiration. Unfortunately, many of us live our daily lives with the assumption that the world revolves around us. And may I assure you and me that we're wrong in that assumption. God doesn't owe any explanation to His tactics. Never has, never will. If we're to look back in the book of Jeremiah, there is more explanation in, to this text as to why God responds in this way. If you turn back in Jeremiah chapter 30, we're just going to read verses 12 through 15, you're going to see a glimpse of why it is that God does what He does and the aftermath of the destruction of Jerusalem. In Jeremiah 30 verses 12 through 15, here's what it says. For thus says the Lord, your affliction is incurable. Your wound is severe. There is no one to plead your cause that you may be bound up. You have no healing medicines. All your lovers have forgotten you. They did not seek you. For I have wounded you with the wound of an enemy, with the chastisement of a cruel one. Why? For the multitude of your iniquities because your sins have increased. Why do you cry about your affliction? Your sorrow is incurable. 
because of the multitude of your iniquities, because your sins have increased, I have done these things to you. Because of the continual spiral into further depravity, God makes it abundantly clear that He does not owe them any relief due to their refusal to turn from sin. Unfortunately, what most people assume in societies that are destroyed by the judgment of God is that God somehow needs to pity them for their continual spiral into depravity. In fact, he tells the nation of Israel there isn't a simple cure to the punishment or the affliction that they're facing. Because they continually go about disregarding what he has commanded when it came to worship by offering up child sacrifices to foreign gods. Lest we think that we're any better, we have this thing called abortion in our own nation. Pride and ingratitude is something that he also called them out for in the book of Jeremiah. Mistreating those in their midst that were less fortunate. Sound familiar? That goes on in many cultures. And even cheating on their spouses. Adultery is directly called out in the book of Jeremiah. Faithfulness in relationships. None of these things did Israel consider worthy of repentance. And they had no right to ask God to take back His judgment. God may have turned on them as an enemy, but it was still for their long-term good. Because God promised that one day He would restore them. Once again, the payment had to be made for sins unrepented of. The day of judgment came for Israel, and it's already coming for many in this world who live in a refusal to repent. The shame Israel felt in their destruction left them without a friend to comfort them, because the very friends that they relied on were no longer to be found. Unfortunately, I think what happens in many of our Christian culture in America is we have songs like, I am a friend of God, he calls me friend, and it gives us this ridiculous theology that I'm so wonderful and God owes me so much. How dare he put me through consequences for sin? We think that we can live any way we want and God should just respond as a friend that's okay with us living that way. When if we're really going to look at the definition of friendship, friends call people out for what they do wrong. And God cannot be a greater friend than when He tells us when we're wrong. Our enemies are the ones that are going to tell us what we want to hear. So anytime when it looks like God may not be the friend we want, that's when He's the truest friend we have. When hardships come, so many Christians are so shocked They're shocked by the fact that they have to pay for the consequences. What do we expect? We're free from eternal punishment of sin as believers in Christ, but we're not free from consequences in this life. God's axiomatic truths apply whether you're a believer or not. You want to be enslaved in money? Go into a ton of debt and wonder wonder why you're enslaved. You shouldn't. It's pretty crystal clear what happens. 
That truth applies whether you're saved or not. Unfortunately, what Christians don't realize is that's not how this works. You don't get to pick what kind of version of God you want. And unfortunately, that's one of the problems in modern-day Christianity. The version of God isn't the one that's in the Bible. The version of God is the one that we've come up with in our own minds. I want God to be nice to me. I want Him to love me with all the sin that I want to still commit. And I'm shocked that He wouldn't allow that. Why do we get shocked as a nation when the church is supposedly a huge percentage of this country and yet we have rampant immorality in this country? Why are we shocked that our country is going down the drain so fast? Why are we shocked that we've added letters to our depravity? I mean, you might as well add every letter. You'd probably come up with every sin that you could. And the issue isn't even tolerance anymore. It's promotion. It wasn't enough that we were okay with letting people live a certain way. We need to promote them. And if we don't promote them, then we're not accepting. What's astounding to me, and and I've I've watched this for the last few years, is many of the things that were stated that were never going to be pushed on the rest of society are being pushed on the rest of society. And we've equated disagreement with people with hatred for people. I always tell people that say that to me, I say, listen, I disagree with my mom on a lot of things. I don't hate my mom. I love my mom dearly. But I have differences in some areas. I have preferences on certain things that I like that she doesn't, and vice versa. Doesn't mean I hate her. The things that God hates, we ought to hate. And the truest example of that is what Jesus did when he was on this earth. He truly met people's needs, but he never gave them an excuse for their sin. He never told the woman caught in adultery, you're fine. I'm not here to judge you. Go and keep sinning. Was that what Jesus ended with? No, he said, go and sin no more. The little phrase that's left out by many that try to connect with sinners in this world. Their version of Jesus isn't even the one that's in the Bible. At least be honest, like some progressives are. Ah, some of this is pretty good facts, some principles to live by. We don't really believe it's fully inspired by the Word of God. God's Word is not really inspired by Him. At least be honest, if that's where we're going to go. I appreciate at least the sincerity from progressive liberals. They're a little more honest with their theology. What's worse is when when evangelicals go ahead and proclaim that they believe the Word of God and they try really hard to keep avoiding the verses that are clear-cut. Makes us squirm, but we don't want to bring them up. All those so-called friends that encourage sin will not be around to comfort when we're in the broken state that they're in. Truth is, God may not be fighting for you in the way that you would expect because He's ultimately fighting against the sin in your heart. And you're expecting God to be okay with that. You're expecting a holy God to be okay with sin when it cost that holy God His own Son. What 
was the point of Jesus coming? To just be a better example for us? That's what a lot of Christians believe. Their idea of eternal damnation is not even in the context. There's a balance that's missed by many in Christendom today. You see, some love, and they major on the love of God. And they ignore His holiness. While others major on His justice without even so much acknowledging the mercy and grace that's available. One of the best verses to keep ourselves in check that I've found is in Exodus 34 where Moses is instructed to make new tablets after the first ones were destroyed. And God says this to him in verses 6 through 7. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. And many in Christendom today, Amen, preacher, preach that. They leave out the next part. Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. Now, it's important for us to understand the context here. We're talking about the nation of Israel that's about to enter the promised land and they refuse to believe what God was doing. They refused to act in faith. God is God, who is merciful and gracious, but does not clear the guilty who have refused to repent. In context, it's the nation of Israel whose older generation refused to believe that they would be able to enter the promised land. And that affected their offspring. Their lack of faith affected those that came after them. There are certain consequences that we pass on in our refusal to obey God. And it's clearly revealed. How is it clearly revealed? It's usually because our children pick up the very sinful habits that we have, parents. They're many times a reflection of who we really are. Are refusing to believe the promises of God in the way that we live? thinking that we can somehow make sure that it all depends on us and we're enough. If your children see that you're relying more on your efforts than God's grace, they're going to possibly fall in those footsteps. Bitterness, anger, envy is usually caught from parents a lot more than they would like to admit. You act just like your father or mother is more true than many of us want to admit. You ever hear somebody say that? You're just like your mom. You're just like your dad. Sometimes the truth is, is there. Our, cho our choices, and our sinful choices particularly, are passed down sometimes to our children. Our attempt to add what is required in our walk with God is a pitfall that our children can readily fall into as well. When we add extra things that Scripture doesn't say as a requirement to walk faithfully with God, our children can follow in those same footsteps. Here's what's stunning. Most parents don't realize that a lot of the extra-biblical stuff we add to our family's culture setting that we have at home 
plays a big role in how they develop later on as parents. And what, one of two things ends up happening typically. They either go more extreme with what we've already implemented in our culture, or they completely rebel and disregard every single thing we've taught them because we, they saw all the hypocrisy and the added laws that we added to the Word of God. What are some other things that may be passed on to our children as parents? Our stubborn refusal to admit that we've sinned before God and others. It only lays the groundwork for our children to use those same excuses. You want to know why our children aren't so readily, um, how can I say this properly, willing to admit that they've sinned before us? Could it be that we don't admit our own sin as often as we should? Could it be that when we're fighting with our spouse, we're not so willing to own our end of that? And it's always someone else's fault? And we're wondering and we're surprised why Junior is so frustrated that we make them say sorry? Parents tend to tell their children to work things out with their peers, disregarding their own refusal to make things right that are their own, people around them. It's amazing how hypocritical we are. Oh, you better apologize for what you've done. You better tell them they hurt you. Parents, what are you doing? What are we doing as adults? Are we willing to go that courageous ourselves with people we have conflicts with? Are we too mature for that? We're without flaws. Our children are the only ones that need to work things out with others. It's where the rubber meets the road. Which is why a lot of these things are passed down many times. Parents, if our jump to justice before mercy and long-suffering is what we want to do right away, then our children will never learn the mercy of God. If you're that first offense smackdown, our children won't learn mercy. God is gracious and merciful and long-suffering. Does he hold us guiltless at some points? No. But he is long-suffering. And there should be some patience in how we parent our kids. They're going to mess up. Some of them will mess up royally when they become teenagers. Bank on it. Remember what you were when you were that age. It's one of the hardest things for me as a principal sometimes, right? Someone gets in trouble, they're called to my office, and I remember what I was like. And I look at that boy, and I go, man, they were just like me. In some cases, I was worse than that. But we're going to leave that alone. And that's the reality. Because we need to understand that God is gracious. He is merciful. He is long-suffering. But there are consequences as time goes on. God is so patient with us. And yes, that does end at some point. But he does not swiftly come after us right away. Assuming that God is our friend while disregarding his call to repent is forgetting the relationship that we have with him. If your assumption of friendship with God is that God is no longer holy and that's your perspective, you don't have the right deal. If you've made God a friend like you've made him a buddy that much of our culture has, you've lost, you've lost 
the reverence you ought to have for him. The serious warnings found in Scripture to Jewish Christians in the book of Hebrews that Pastor Rizzo is going through currently, they need to be heeded. There's some serious warnings in the book of Hebrews for those that trample what they've been given. There isn't just a false assumption of friendship by many, as it was in the nation of Israel. There's an apparent loss of connection. The loss of connection, number three, verses six through ten. He has done violence to his tabernacle as if it were a garden. He has destroyed his place of assembly. The Lord has caused the appointed feasts and Sabbaths to be forgotten in Zion. In his burning indignation, he has spurned the king and the priest. The Lord has spurned his altar. He has abandoned his sanctuary. He has given up the walls of her palaces into the hand of the enemy. They have made a noise in the house of the Lord as on the day of a set feast. The Lord has purposed to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. He has stretched out a line. He has not withdrawn his hand from destroying. Therefore, he has caused the rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the nations. The law is no more. And her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground and keep silence. They throw dust on their heads and gird themselves with sackcloth. The virgins of Jerusalem bow their heads to the ground. God essentially destroyed the fake false worship that Israel was involved in. Everything that Israel offered him was displeasing to him. And don't believe for a moment that just because a church has a nice building that God would not care for it to destroy if it's dishonoring his name. If he destroyed the temple, a sacred place for the people of God to gather, any building is not going to matter. Unfortunately, many of us as church folk assume that God is going to protect certain things and keep certain things in line and okay, even though we've disregarded his instructions. The church, essentially, and I mean Christendom as a whole, has lost its testimony, lost its influence in the world. And no amount of wonderful, come out and hear how amazing you are sermons are going to change that. Because you're giving them a counterfeit, not the real thing. The getting together for feasts and Sabbaths was all but forgotten as Israel was carried into captivity. All the wonderful times of worship were now abandoned. Instead of worshiping as a congregation, they were going to have to worship individually in repentance before God. Those that were in charge of the nation, king and priest, both fell together. The leaders go down with the ship. In this case, it's a devastating picture as was already discussed with King Zedekiah. But today we're going to take a look at Pashur, who was the priest who opposed Jeremiah. Back in Jeremiah chapter 20, 
right after Jeremiah warns about the coming judgment in detail, and he mentions the following, death by sword, famine, cannibalism, parents eating their own children because they're starving. Yes, that's mentioned in Scripture. For those of us that want to avoid the truth. These things, as Jeremiah mentions them, we read of Pashur the priest in Jeremiah chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. I want us to listen to what it says. Now Pashur the son of Emir, the priest who was also chief governor in the house of the Lord, heard that Jeremiah prophesied these things. Then Pashur struck Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the high gate of Benjamin, which was by the house of the Lord. And it happened on the next day that Pashur brought Jeremiah out of the stocks. Then Jeremiah said to him, The Lord has not called your name Pashur, but Magor Misabib. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends, and they shall fall by the sword of their enemies, and your eyes will see it. I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will carry them captive to Babylon and slay them with the sword. Moreover, I will deliver all the wealth of the city, all its produce and all its precious things, all the treasures of the kings of Judah, I will give into the hand of their enemies who will plunder them, seize them, and carry them to Babylon. And you, Pesher, and all who dwell in your house shall go into captivity. You shall go to Babylon, and there you shall die and be buried there, you and all your friends, to whom you have prophesied lies. A couple things to point out about Pashur here. He heard about this prophecy probably from someone else, not Jeremiah directly. As soon as he hears of what Jeremiah is proclaiming, the judgment that's coming from God, he strikes Jeremiah. He has authority. Essentially, he probably had him scourged with lashes. And he has the authority to put him in prison. What a great man of God, right? A priest that decides to go take a prophet and throw him in jail. Don't be surprised, church, that many of the persecutors of the true church of God come in the name of God and are false prophets. This has always been the case for many, many millennia. This does not change. You will always have frauds that will use what God says in a way to take out God's people. And many times they go after those that proclaim the words of the Word of God. He strikes Jeremiah, puts him in prison. In fact, the prison is right by the temple in Jerusalem. Jeremiah is publicly humiliated and what's important to know is Pashur is the one who is trusted by the people, not Jeremiah. Just because someone has the majority opinion doesn't make it right. In today's culture, it's becoming more and more difficult to talk about certain issues when it comes to the LGBT movement simply because you're not going to be the majority much longer. As far as what culture is going to say. 
And I would say, essentially, we've already lost that battle. Because even those that don't agree with the lifestyle are fine with it. And not just tolerate it, promote it. Even those that don't live it themselves. The truth is, to these people in Israel... Jeremiah is the one that's just going around spreading a false narrative of judgment. He's raining on our parade. Jeremiah is the ultimate conspiracy theorist, if you will. He's spreading lies, making up stuff, spreading fake news. He's not telling us of the grandeur of Jerusalem, how amazing we are as a country. What makes any nation great is its reverence towards God. Anything apart from that is fickle and it falls. When this was happening to Jeremiah, he looked like the fool and the one that was crazy. While Pasher was just speaking the facts to everybody around. You see? He's wrong. The prophets of God were essentially publicly embarrassed in a way to show the children of Israel that their message couldn't be trusted. Church, be very aware of the fact that the enemy, particularly Satan, and the way he uses people to destroy others that are faithful to God, it's typically one method, public humiliation. If Satan wants a movement to be destroyed that's actually promoting God's kingdom, then he's going to publicly humiliate whoever he can that's in leadership positions or proclaiming the truth of God. Which ought to tell you and me that you need to pray for those that are faithful to God's word. Because the truth is, there are targets on the backs of every person that wants to be faithful to the word of God, particularly those that are leaders. been this way for thousands of years, silence the messenger by embarrassing them and acting like they're crazy. No, no, Jeremiah, you're not telling the truth. No, we're doing fine. Jeremiah, stop. Throw him in jail. He's crazy. He doesn't belong here in this role. But here's what's interesting. So he gets thrown in jail. But that doesn't stop there. Why? Because Pasher looks to be the nice guy. He frees Jeremiah the next day. Look at how nice he is. After we've embarrassed the, the prophet, we're going to make it okay. Let him out. Pretend like nothing really happened. Jeremiah, you can, you can, you're free to go now. After, we, after we've publicly embarrassed you in front of everyone else. As so happens with those who abuse others and pretend to actually care after they've been so cruel. You ever see that in society? I really care about those people. After I've completely demolished them. An amazing exchange occurs when Jeremiah is freed, though. 
a name change from the Lord. Jeremiah said that his name, Pashur, which means ease, peace, or freedom, would be changed to Magor Misabib, which means terror on every side. How's that for a name change? You got a wonderful name? We're going to change it to something that means disaster and terror. Essentially, what Jeremiah did here was double down on the message of destruction. He was not phased one bit that he was just in jail. You know what most Christians do after they've experienced a hardship? I'm going to keep quiet next time. I don't want to cause any controversy. Most Christians don't know the tenacity or passion of people like John the Baptist or Jeremiah. Jeremiah comes right out of that cell and doubles down and says, here's a name change from the Lord for you. In fact, he even included specific judgment. How about that for doubling down? I'm going to tell you exactly how you're going down. I'm not going to be generic in what I'm saying. I'm going to be specific to you and what God's going to do to you. Pashur and all his family would be going into captivity, the very thing that he believed would not happen. What Pashur was doing was prophesying lies to the children of Israel, and God was going to hold him accountable for that. All the things that he denied would happen to him would happen exactly to him and his family. In fact, he would die in captivity. Now, here's a huge lesson to learn from this exchange. Truth may be challenged to the point of public embarrassment or even imprisonment. Listen, believer, if you don't stand for anything, you're going to fall for everything. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians are so tolerant and loving, they have no stand on anything. They're so willing to just go with whatever culture says, which is why those people will never be able to share the gospel because they're only giving them part of it. They don't give them the whole picture. If a person starts with God loves you and doesn't talk about God's wrath and sin that we are judged for, if we don't know Christ, they've only given part of the gospel. God's love demanded justice. And that justice was paid by His Son, Jesus Christ. Another truth that we learn from here is that speaking the truth will have consequences, not speaking the truth and remaining silent will also have consequences. Let, 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 me, let me guarantee you one thing, Christian. If you want the most comfortable life ever as a believer, I'm talking comfortable. Don't take a stand on anything. Don't. Just chill, relax, enjoy what you have in this life, keep everything to yourself, Pretend that God has not called you to follow as he has. But I promise you, in that comfort that you have, you'll find destruction. Which is why so many Christians, 10, 10 years later, 15 years later, 20 years later, are shocked that things end up the way that they did in their families. But I thought, by being more comfortable, it would be better. By not taking a stand and being more tolerant, God would bless me more. 
The things you tolerate today, your children may promote tomorrow. You want to tell me that every one of those that are now promoting sinful lifestyles, their parents really had strong biblical standards that came from Christian homes? We were just reading in the book of Judges recently, right? Where the people that were in the generation of Joshua, they followed the Lord. And it isn't until a few generations later that all of that is no longer practiced. Why? Because they didn't even pay attention to what God had done in Joshua's ministry and leadership. One of the things we talked about with our boys, and I said this specifically last night as we were talking about it, leadership is so important that whoever is in charge of whatever church my kids go to, possibly in the future, and it might not be my own, you pay attention to what that leader promotes. You pay attention whether he aligns with the Word of God. And that means you need to be in the Word yourself to be able to know. There's such a flippant attitude to what God's Word says today. Leadership matters. And you see that throughout the book of Judges as well. God raises up a judge to deliver them. The people start walking with God. That judges, judge passes from the scene. They go right back to their old ways. What's even worse is when those that are in charge are absolutely horrible leaders and promoting absolute pagan idolatry. Here's another truth that so many of us as Christians really need to zero in on. Pretending that something isn't going to happen that God says will not make it go away. Just because the prophet assumed there's no way this is going to happen doesn't mean that it didn't. Because it did. And it came pouring down on his head. Don't ever assume that because God only deals with certain people like that, it won't be you next time. You have to be constantly aware, believer, that God has a severe, strict chastisement for His children who disregard what He says. Oh, your eternity is intact, but your life here is going to be the most miserable existence you can imagine possibly. Which is why the most miserable people on this earth are not unbelievers. They're Christians that ought to know better, ought to live better, and refuse to do so. And it catches up to them. Back in Lamentations 2, there is a loss of connection, and sometimes it seems that we're doing fine and we're walking with God and everything's just fine. We're okay. But it isn't until God starts taking certain things away that we hold dear personally, that we start realizing that maybe we have lost connection with God. You ever had to do an analysis on why that week went particularly bad compared to other weeks? I don't know if you've ever done that. You've looked back at a certain week and go, man, why did this week just completely go horrible? Like the whole week went bad, right? We have our off days. We know that those come. But what happens when you have a whole period of time and you look back and like, man, everything just went poorly. How many times have we gone back and said, you know what? I didn't make God a priority at all. Or because maybe I did read the Word of God, but I didn't really dwell with God. 
I didn't care to really make it a priority to want to know him better. I just did the motions. You can memorize a lot of scripture and have no connection with God. Pharisees are living proof of that. They'd run circles around most pastors, including myself, and what they know of Scripture. But their hearts were far from Him. Israel lost its temple, its celebrations, its city, and it became abundantly clear right at the end here that her prophets found no vision from the Lord. That's a disaster. When you no longer hear from God, When we don't hear from God, that's a disaster. I've always heard it said, you know, God sometimes when we pray, He answers yes, no, and wait. And there's always an option that many preachers leave out. The, I refuse to hear you. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. That's in the Bible. I don't know why many, when preaching on prayer, leave that option completely off the table. That's not one of the things that happens. Very well can. In fact, there's one marital text that says that if you don't have a good relationship with your spouse, God won't hear you either. And it's speaking to husbands and dealing with their wives. So before we jump to, well, you know what? God's just telling me to wait on something. What if he's not listening? Because you have sin that's built up between you and him. What if that's what needs to be broken down first before he will even answer? All the assumptions that they were good were now gone. They were left to mourn the loss of their connection to Yahweh. It's almost as if what you see as smoke and devastation after a war and everything is silent. You ever seen that in movies? After a war and all the demolishment of cities and it's just quiet and you just see smoke rising. That's essentially what Israel sees is in silence that God has left them. So in conclusion, church, Seems like a basic question, but I want to dig a little bit deeper this morning. How is your relationship with God? How is your relationship with God? Do you assume that God is close when there may be some distance between you and Him? Maybe you're not as close to Him as you think you are. Oh, you've checked the boxes, right? You've done the reading program that we've asked as a church, you've prayed. But maybe you're not as close to God as you'd like to assume. Do you assume that because you're one of God's children, the consequences haven't already affected you and those around you when it comes to sin? You see, here's the truth. Some of those consequences may very well be affecting you right now and you don't notice. How many of us have ever been on the other end of repentance and realized, oh my goodness, God was trying to teach me something for a long time and I'm too stupid to see it? I'm too blind to see what God clearly was trying to show me. Sometimes we're already under chastening, but don't realize it until God turns it up a bit. Believer, don't wait till it gets turned up. Deal with it when it's a smaller consequence. 
As people say all the time, Roman, when you get older, it's too late to undo certain things. While you have the chance, church, while I have the chance, let's repent before God takes more severe measures. Here's the other side of that. Maybe you find the God of Scripture to be unworthy of your time. And you've essentially replaced the things of this world with Him. Maybe you're saying, you know what? Really, I don't really care. YOLO! You only live once, right? Who cares? But is that what the response should be? Jesus laid down his life for you as a true friend. Let me ask you, believer, how valuable is that to you and me? That somebody would literally pay with their life for your behalf. Take the time to think about that. Unfortunately, so many of us as Christians are more moved by patriotic movies and wonderful emotional love stories on TV. We're very unmoved by what the gospel really declares. Let me ask you, do you seek forgiveness more than resentment when it comes to others? But let's just be honest for a moment here, right? Do some of us find that we enjoy the feeling of resentment more than working it out and asking for forgiveness? And we just enjoy holding on to certain things, do we not? Like it's like owed us, right? That person did us wrong, I'm just going to hold it a bit longer. I don't want to resolve this. I'm enjoying the misery of being disconnected from them. Just chalk it up to toxic people, right? That's the modern way of doing it. There's toxic people. Everybody else is toxic but me. Garbage. Look in the mirror. Many times the reflection of our relationships is really what's in our heart. Maybe God is dealing with you in a similar fashion as he was dealing with Israel. And internally you know it's all falling apart. It's falling apart. There seems like you can't take any more of what God's trying to do. What is he calling you to repent of today? It doesn't stop all the consequences. But it does provide a restoration. And you can rebuild, which is what Jerusalem does later on. There's a rebuilding process later on. The beauty of the gospel is that God demonstrates both mercy and judgment in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. To us, mercy, because Jesus took our punishment. Believer, God promises us eternal life if we've trusted Christ. What he doesn't promise us is a life without consequence if you live any way you want. That's what he doesn't promise us. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians assume because they're eternally secure, they can live whatever way they want. That is abusing the doctrine that's clearly laid out in Scripture. Eternal life was given to all of us who deserve grace. A death 
All of us deserve death. And we've given, been given grace and eternal life because of Christ. As Jesus prays for those who will one day trust Him, I want you to hear these words, believer. In John 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life. This is Jesus praying for you, believer. I want you to understand, this is real personal stuff. That they may know you, Jesus praying, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Knowing Christ is having eternal life. May we live lives worthy of this calling.